0: Welcome. Thanks for joining us for the Yoga and Body Image Coalition podcast. My my guest today is Hala Khoury, who is an um, MA and experienced uh, registered yoga teacher and has been teaching yoga and the movement arts for over 20 years. She earned her BA in psychology from Columbia University and her MA in counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She's trained in somatic experiencing, a body-based psychotherapy that addresses trauma and its symptoms. She is the co-founder of Off the Mat Into the World, a training organization that bridges yoga and activism within a social justice framework. She leads trauma-informed yoga trainings nationally and her own 200-hour yoga teacher training in Los Angeles. She lives in Venice, California with her husband and two sons. Hi, Hala. Thank you for joining us. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so when you and I were chatting, we, we, uh, talked a little bit about, uh, what what your journey was uh with yoga and body image and thought maybe you could start by just telling us that story yeah absolutely i mean it's a
1: formative one for me prior to um teaching yoga i was um, a fitness instructor it's a little secret i don't tell everybody that i was an aerobics instructor <laughs> um <laughs> and and I, I i've always been into i was always into exercise um and loving teaching exercise um and I always saw myself as a very fit person. And when I was in my early 20s, I got diagnosed with cervical dysplasia, which is cancer on the cervix. And that was a big wake-up call for me because, I, like I said, I thought I was really healthy. And what that experience revealed to me was that there was a difference between being fit and being healthy. Now, I was working out a lot prior to that experience and, really grappling with my own addiction to sugar and I would eat all this sugar and then go work out a lot. And, you know, my, my relationship with my body and my relationship with exercise was one that I was trying to assuage the guilt of all the sugar intake and mm-hmm. and mold and try to control my body. Um, it was not a very healthy relationship. And when my health got threatened, I had to seriously rethink the way that I was treating my body. And, um, I spent a month, I got permission from the doctor to, to wait one month before they wanted to re- surgically remove the stuff on my cervix, and I stopped all of my aggressive exercise. I was reading books on, I was reading Carolyn Mace's book, Anatomy of the Spirit, and thinking about symbolically what this meant in terms of my second chakra, um, and started to, to realize there were a lot of ways that I had unhealthy behaviors in the ways that I was dealing with relationships and boundaries and self-care. So I stopped doing anything aggressive, and for a full month, started to started doing just gentle yoga, energetic healing, cleansing, um, a lot of journaling and therapy, to, to to address what was happening on my cervix, but also uncovering a lot of dysfunctional behavior around my choices around food and around exercise, and that really changed everything. Suddenly, I suddenly I saw my body rather as an expression of my, of my life and the way I treated Mm. my body as an opportunity to treat my body in a kind way and not as something that was, it was being kind of abusive to my body. Um, So Mm. yoga for me, starting to do yoga was me stepping out of the aggressive fitness mentality that the body is something, something to be controlled and shaped and molded and stepping into that I'm going to use my physical practice as an opportunity to connect deeper with myself. So that was, that was pretty powerful to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love the phrase, um, experience your, your body as an expression of my life. That's really beautiful because so many of us are just so disconnected from our bodies or have some sort of really um, unhealthy or uh, unembodied or dysfunctional relationship with our bodies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Yeah, you know, I grappled with it for a really long time, especially because, you know, my mother growing up was diabetic and she really struggled with eating sugar and her weight going up and down and my my sister was of a larger body and but I was a binger. And so I just had the physiology where I didn't gain weight, but in my mind I was a fat person and I, and and that wasn't a that wasn't a good thing to me. Um and so I always had this confusion around my own body image and then and shame and and a lot of confusion around it. And I think
0: that that's mm-hmm. typical
1: for a lot of people.
0: Mhm. Yeah, especially when there's a um a disconnect between what our body actually is, what our body actually needs and our perception of of that and if that disconnect is unkind um then then it does harm to us in a lot of ways and and it sounds like what you one of the things you did on your path was to really integrate in a much more healthy way your sense of self your body your experience of your body
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and it took years you know it wasn't like you know when I talk to people that are struggling whether it's with with food or body image and you know I never thought I would get to the other side of this like I still have moments where I wake up and I'm like oh my gosh I have a healthy relationship with food in my body. Like, it was such a big reality for me up until my mid-20s. And, and I used to feel so, so frustrated because here I was. I was in college. I was studying psychology. I was doing all this exciting stuff. But for the most part, what I thought about was food and my body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I have so many better things to think about.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I think a lot of our listeners probably have uh, – similar stories or resonate with, with your story. And so you mentioned that it took years. Were there, are there signposts? Are there, there sort of moments where you, there were, there were glimpses of clarity that gave you some hope or, or something that your, our listeners can be sort of like, ah, okay. If Mm -hmm. I watch for those things or if I learn how to listen to that in myself, then I know that I'm on the right path, even if it takes me many, many years.
1: Yeah, you know, my journey was a bumpy one, and I always say it's not linear. Um, and for me personally, my my stuff was um, overeating sugar and getting really out of control around sugar and, and just having entire days where I had stomach aches all day long from, from just eating mm-hmm. the wrong food. Um, and, you know, my, 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 my pattern historically was I'm never going to eat sugar again, and so I would for like four days not touch sugar, and then, of course, that would lead to the pendulum swinging to the opposite end. Um, and then mm-hmm. binging on sugar. Um, so my the first stage that I did um, was I decided I was going to let myself eat as much sugar as I wanted, but my only rule was that I had to be sitting down and I had to actually be tasting it. So mm-hmm. and that was really scary because my fear was if I let myself do that, then I would go even more out of control, right? But I realized mm-hmm. that I didn't trust my body to to crave what was good for it. So so I did that I would say for like six months and I remember like sitting in a pastry shop. Because so eating was so connected to shame for me that I would always eat in secret. Um, mm. and so I would go and I would sit and I would order a piece of cake and I would eat it at the table. I wouldn't just like take it to go and ram it down my mouth as I was walking down the street. This is this is all in New York City. So in New York City, because it's a it's a walking city, I was always passing pastry shops and mm-hmm. it was always available. My drug was always available to me. Um so I would say for months I did that. I, I, I could eat whatever I wanted, but my rule was I had to be sitting and I had to be tasting it. Um, and then I gradually shifted to, okay, now I'm going to shift to less refined sugar. I can have as much as I want as long as it's not refined white sugar. And I was eating dark chocolate covered almonds. And, you know, in, in that city I could get whatever I wanted made with less refined sugar. Um and then that lasted for a while, and, and what I was trying to do was address both my physical addiction um, as well as my emotional addiction. And mm-hmm. I discovered for me there was a big physical component. It wasn't just emotional. My body was also physically addicted. So, mm-hmm. so then starting to add protein to my diet, and 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 then, and then it was like I think that was years of like I can eat as much unrefined stuff as I want, um, because what I realized was it wasn't about willpower. It was about retraining my body and my mind and, you know, lots of therapy around my own body image and my own relationship to food and my relationship to needing to be in control. A lot of this was about control mm-hmm. for me. I'm sure a lot of people can identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the day that I knew that I'd kicked my sugar addiction was when somebody offered me a piece of a Toblerone bar and I said yes and I had one piece and felt satisfied. That was the day. The day was when I could actually have my trigger food and not be triggered. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I still can't believe that I'm that person. Like, I, I really couldn't, when I was in it, I couldn't see myself out there because if I had one piece of something sweet, I was, you know, eating two bags of
0: it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it took
1: years, and it was a very gradual process, and it wasn't linear, and then I would I would kind of go back to old behaviors, and I would have to not go into judgment and fear around it. I had to get really soft with myself, really gentle, because mm-hmm. the aggressive energy was keeping me on the back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you Absolutely. know, now I eat, But you know, I, I, I'm able to, like, trust my what my body wants to eat, which is, again, I, I, I'm still, I never thought I would fear <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and wow. I love my body and I've you know it, I don't I, I I posted something on Facebook a while back about a photo shoot when I was 16 and I had like the perfect little body according to social standards right um mm-hmm. and I put a picture of me this summer with my kids with my you know my stretch marks on my belly and my like my mama belly and my mama body and you know I feel so good in my body right now and you know if you mm-hmm. look at it again in terms of how we're We're trained to look at bodies. My 16-year-old body is, quote, unquote, better. And actually, my 41-year-old body is what I
0: really love. I feel so proud of. That's so hopeful. That's so beautiful. Um, How did your experience of parenthood uh, play into this relationship or mothering? Mothering. Oh, well, being pregnant was amazing because all of a sudden my
1: body was this incredible baby-making machine. And um, and all of a sudden, it was like, "Oh my, this is what my body is for <laughs> um, and and that was amazing and and I you know, putting on weight and like and not being concerned about it and and you know, I have to say having having the mirroring of a partner you know my husband who just loved it and was like, I really hope mm-hmm. you don't lose your baby weight you know? <laughs> and it's refreshing too, to just have that have those kinds of people around me, you know, who genuinely mm-hmm.
0: just
1: love me however I am. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so
1: having, having children and giving birth gave me just such a profound, renewed um, gratitude and reverence for my body and what it could do. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm proud. I'm proud of my stretch marks and my cellulite on my stomach that I never had before. Like, those are like my
0: warrior marks,
1: you know, of, of something mm-hmm. that I did that was cre- quite a miracle.
0: It sounds just so beautiful and it's just so inspiring to listen to you talk. Um, You know, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about all the body image issues that so many people bring into yoga studios or images that um, keep them out of yoga studios or yoga practices. And I'm wondering, how do you, as a yoga teacher, um, inspire your students to have a, a gratitude and kindness and reverence for their own embodiment and their own their own body.
1: I think on one layer, I'm really conscious of my language um, and to make sure I don't inadvertently use language that is shaming. Um, mm-hmm. I have especially when like doing core work, for example, right? I talk about. I have this spiel where I talk about how structurally it's actually the deep core muscles that support the back and that what our society is obsessed with are the surface muscles that give us a six-pack, but that's actually not what's healthy. And, and I joke, and I, I say, you know what, you can be flabby and strong. That's my motto, that strength is actually, like, even physiologically, like we can have deep strength without having a flat stomach. Um, and so I'll say stuff like that, so I'm inviting people to consider and think about, as we're, doing, as we're strengthening our core, that we're not trying to make our stomachs flat. So I'll say that stuff out loud. Um, you know, my, my yoga studio was purchased a few years ago by a more fitness-oriented company, and they, they remodeled it last year and put all these images up that I completely disagree with, images of, like, airbrushed butts and flat stomachs. Um, oh. So I, I joke to my students, I say to them, I say, I'm sorry I had to walk through all the butts to get in here. <laughs> um and and I'll say stuff like, you know what, if it's not you know, and I'll just I'll make jokes. I'll say, you know what if having a butt like that meant happiness, you know, I would have been happy when I was sixteen, and there's zero relationship between what you're seeing when you walk through those doors and and what what true resilience is and And mm-hmm. I talk a lot about why we do yoga, which is about cultivating resilience um,
0: mm-hmm. and not
1: perfectionism. Um, and, and I'm also in deep dialogue with. The owners of this, it's like a franchise about changing the imagery that's there, and I'm letting them know I can't align myself if they're going to perpetuate dangerous body image ideals. So I'm doing my best to change it from within because I think that if Mm. all of their locations showed pictures, maybe pictures from our Yoga for All Bodies photo shoot that we did, um, I think that would be amazing. So I'm I'm working from the inside out to see if we can make some change.
0: Mm, That's fabulous. I think, um, you know, the – Part of the mission of the Yoga and Body Image Coalition that we're both connected to is to change that image um, and to widen the access and perception of what yoga can offer us um, mm-hmm. so that more people can um, experience it. And you said something about uh, yoga is about cultivating resilience, not perfection, which is just so beautiful. Can you tell people what what how you define resilience? hmm Resilience means
1: knowing that we're going to be okay even if our circumstances aren't perfect. And mm. I, I talk about it in tree posts. You know, I go up into tree and I'll see the students who are all rigid and trying to do it perfectly. And I tell them, you know what, resilience is, is falling and keeping your breath while you fall. Um, mm. And perfectionism is a prison. And and I think that that really resonates. And I invite people to feel what that's like in their body. And I actually sometimes have us fall out of tree on purpose <laughs> to see that we'll survive. <laughs>
0: i i think back to some of my uh younger years and years when i struggled with my own version of addictions and i was such a perfectionist i don't it, it now i see what a prison it was but i at the time i couldn't i couldn't feel it i couldn't feel really um um, because that's what it does, um, for me anyway, it disconnected me so much from my heart and my body, and really my authentic self, and it was yoga that brought me back to that. Um, mm-hmm. So as I hear you talk, it's just the language you use and the kindness and the, the compassion uh, you express. It makes me want to be in your class. I wish I were in California. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know, I <laughs> know. Um. Yeah, you know, and I'm really passionate about like, you know, cause I train yoga teachers and saying like, how can we use language that's not oppressive? Um, and all the subtle ways that we create that competitiveness or that perfectionism, you know, I have one phrase I say cause I teach, I teach a flow class and, and I'll say to people, okay, you know, either take the, for whether to take a vinyasa or not, I'll say take the direct route or the scenic route. Like they're both good routes. And mm. how do we start to craft language that's not hierarchical? And that isn't mm-hmm. shaming, right? So I don't even use beginners or advanced. I'll say, you know, cool people mm-hmm. do this, hot people do this. Like if you need more heat in your body, you know, or if you're if you're tending to an injury. And so all of that is a way that a yoga teacher can start to to decolonize the minds of our students through mm-hmm. this
0: subtle messaging. hmm And we have to decolonize our own minds first, right? Because we're culture, we're products of our culture too. 100%. And if I
1: hadn't, if I weren't actively working on this every day, I couldn't, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I'd be perpetuating it.
0: Right. And actually, I'm a women's studies professor, too. And one of the things I've grown over the years to do is just show the messiness to my students of my own path and my own process and so the moments where, you know, the insights are really clear in the moments where the contradictions are so murky, I'm not really even sure what to do, because I think there's this there's this um, false sense for my women's studies students, and also, uh, at least initially, and for me, for me, um, that the path is going to be clear. And mm-hmm. the more that we see our teachers be authentic and um, share their their journey with us, even if our journey is very different, it gives us permission, I think, mm-hmm. to explore whatever our journey is.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think that you know that self-disclosure can be so healing. I'm a big fan of it myself. I I, I I was I was saying today to my students, I say, you know, I think that in order to grow we we have to be willing to be completely humiliated. <laughs> that, <laughs> it's kind yeah. of humiliating this path, right? Just admitting all this stuff to ourselves. But when we normalize it, like we don't get paralyzed by our shame.
0: Mhm. Mhm. What do you do if um it feels too vulnerable or if um Uh, For that person who's listening and is like, "Mm, well, I couldn't share that in front of people. Um, What would you say there?
1: You know, I think everybody's version of self-disclosure is going to be different. It has to absolutely be done in a way that feels safe. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my first question is, are you admitting it to yourself? Can you write it down Mm -hmm. in a journal? Can you do that Mm -hmm. compassionately? And then can you share it with a close loved one? Um, and it's not that the goal is to shout it out to the world, but to really you – know, the most important thing is are we able to admit it to ourselves that there's something really powerful about being witnessed by somebody else that, break, mm-hmm. that can break the shame. So whether it's in therapy or with with a loved one, um, you know, as a therapist, I have the privilege of, of hearing so many people's stories. And, and so often when someone comes to see me for the first time, I see them feeling like they have this big dark secret, and they're the only one on the planet that has, you know, X, Y, Z. And then when they say it, I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 you know, and, and not, to minimize, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> not to minimize the ways that people struggle or have, have dealt with trauma, but there's something really similar about the human condition. And, you know, we all kind of have the same, very similar limiting belief. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve love. <laughs> and and, and mm-hmm. I feel like one of the best things I can do is normalize people's struggles. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Um Any final words you want to leave with our listeners? I can't believe we've gone through our time already. So quickly, um, you know, I just want to say that if you you are in this place of
1: really struggling, this is kind of strange advice, but the first piece is to just find as much compassionate for where you are in that struggle. Um, Don't be in a hurry to be in a different place because being able to find empathy for why we are where we are It's so important. And if you have to sit in that empathy without changing any of your behaviors or attitudes, but fill yourself with that empathy and acceptance, that's what unlocks the door of our transformation, is being able to accept ourselves exactly as we are, even if we don't like where we are. So
0: that's all Mm -hmm. I got. Thank you. That is beautiful and profound. Thank you, Hala, for joining us today.
1: My pleasure, Beth. Pleasure, Thank
0: you so much Pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, our guest today was Hala Khoury. Uh, you can find more information about her on her website, com. and you can also find information about her on the Yoga and Body Image Coalition website. Thanks so much, Kala Or Hala, I'm sorry. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure.